I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. All right, uh, before we get going, let's talk about this Moon Knight trailer that just came out. As we are recording, the Moon Knight trailer just dropped. It looks really good. Marvel's Moon Knight looks really good. Oscar Isaac looks really good in this trailer, playing the character of Mark Spector, the Moon Knight. Though uh, a character with uh, DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. And one of the things about the trailer that I did like is that we don't we don't start with the character of Mark Spector, but uh, we start with his alter ego, Stephen Grant, which kind of adds to the the chaos of this condition. I I hope that the show treats the condition with respect and it's not you know gimmicky. Even though it's superhero stuff. Well, yeah. Some people are kind of hoping that they'll come up with a different reason, even, for his different identities. Or for his being unmoored, I guess, in his own brain or reality. Because... Sometimes, you know, like you said, it it is kind of difficult to do the mental illness as superpower kind of thing. I mean, even in the comics, people aren't really sure if he actually has the powers of the moon god or if he is just crazy. Yeah, Yeah, which is, you know, an issue. Either way, hopefully they'll... They'll do it right, no matter which way they they choose to go with it. I do think it's interesting um, to hear Oscar Isaac with that accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not bad, but uh, it, it is interesting. It wasn't what I expected. <laughs> I do like the look of the Moon Knight costume has a more mummy feel to it. You even see the costume sort of wrapping around his body, like like mummy wrapping. And we do see um, pyramids and stuff as well in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get that feel as well. There is a lot of museum imagery We've got we've got those themes coming in. And uh, Ethan Hawke looks to be playing. Uh, I don't know if he's playing a villain or what. There's rumors of who he could be playing. Uh, the big rumor that I've heard is that he might be playing the character of Sun King, who is sort of a villain in the Moon Knight uh, comics. Like... Um, like Moon Knight is the avatar for the moon god Khonshu, Sun King is the avatar for the sun god Ra. And even in the comics, again, it's not it's not 100% sure if these two people actually are avatars for Egyptian gods or whether they're both crazy. 
I I'm gonna be honest in the fact that Moon Knight is one of those bits of Marvel that that's kind of a hole in my Marvel knowledge. I am all but completely <laughs> um ignorant about Moon Knight. I mean just the barest. I know yeah, of you know. Moon Knight. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those things of like, I've heard a little bit about Moon Knight. You know, it's it's one of those things that I just never got around to to that particular. So I only know of Moon Knight when he intersects with other, you know. Um, and since Moon, Moon Knight mostly partakes with the supernatural side of uh, of Marvel... You have potential crossovers with other supernatural characters like Blade, or uh, if you've seen the recent Eternals movie, the Black Knight. Yeah, well, and speaking of Blade, also the recent Eternals movie, which I have now caught up on. Thank you. Now that it's on Disney Plus, so. Well, you you heard Blade's <laughs> voice in that movie. <laughs> yeah, we don't see Blade, but you know his his voice is is in there. But uh, yeah. So there's a possibility that you could have Moon Knight crossover with these other characters moon knight could cameo in the future blade movie yeah and um there's always uh, a little bit of um possibility for some doctor strange shenanigans you know yeah we could have like wong show up you know i wouldn't mind wong showing up yeah cut that out (laughs) (laughs) after he's done doing karaoke with uh with Shang Chi and uh, cleaning up the mess Doctor Strange made. <laughs> yeah, I just want Wong to show up in like every other series. You know, I want him to be the the new Nick Fury. I just yeah. want Wong to show up and just be like, "Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Whatever shenanigans are going on here, I do not approve. You Leak need to cut it out. Leave me out of it. <laughs> oh yeah, but." With the so yeah, I'm looking very much looking forward to the Moon Knight show, March 30th. Oh, it's coming up sooner than later, and we're gonna do this all over again. Yeah. But as this trailer's come out, we have a little bit of a tragedy to come from that. Uh, Kiki, do you want to go into that? Yeah, just uh, a couple of hours uh, before we started recording, there was some unfortunate news which is that an actor that is apparently connected with the Moon Knight series doesn't appear in the trailer, apparently, that we got. His his name is Gaspard Uliel. He's a French actor. Um, apparently, he is supposed to be in the Moon Knight series. He, unfortunately, has died after a very tragic skiing accident in the French Alps. Um, he's a French actor who had uh, probably best known for the English-speaking audience uh, as playing a young Hannibal Lecter in the movie Hannibal Rising, which was a, a prequel to the, you know, Silence of the Lambs and, and all that. And had recently done a couple of films, uh, It's Only the End of the World, and then um, a film called Saint Laurent, which was about the uh, fashion designer Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, 
And both of those were supposed to be very good. I have seen neither of them, unfortunately. Um, but he was very good in uh, Hannibal Rising. It was said that he had been cast as Midnight Man in Moon Knight. It's really just kind of from IMDb and um, like Variety, his his Variety obituary, that we're getting that information. I hadn't really seen anything in kind of the official uh, Disney Marvel stuff uh, about him. No real images of his character or anything connected with the show that I had seen. Uh, like I said, nothing from the trailer. He was he was only 37, had a, a young child, a six-year-old that he leaves behind uh unfortunately that is going to kind of cast a bit of a unfortunate shadow i guess over the the show when it comes out but uh we'll we'll see kind of what what his character and and performance is going to be but um only 37 yeah yeah i mean far far too young so uh Let's uh, let's try to lighten the mood a bit after that, because today's episode is about The Three Musketeers, the 1993 Disney version. All for one, one for all, and all for love. That song was like everywhere in 93. Let's make it all for one, all for love. You know, I want to say that one of my cousins had that played at one of their weddings. Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting. Because when you think the Three Musketeers. <laughs> you think three men who were probably never in a room together before or after that doing that song. I don't think they even recorded the song together. Just together for the music video and that was it. <laughs> I'm not even sure they were together for the music video. I think they were together for like a Grammy performance or something. <laughs> yeah, this was we were we were going to do this one for last week's episode. And then, um, you know, the the tragic news about Betty White came through. So we we bumped it by a week. This one, you know, we had talked about how um, the uh, sword in the stone was such a big nostalgic touchstone of your childhood and this one was kind of that for me in mine you know if you want to talk about the mo- the movie that was on all the time in my house other than being called the three musketeers and having characters named Aramis, Athos, Porthos and D'Artagnan this has nothing to do with the original book nothing like this is almost an a complete original story. Yeah, this is this is what uh, Dominic Noble would call the in-name only adaptation, which kind of works for Disney because this was this is '93. This is right at the beginning of what we know as the Disney Renaissance. And how many of those movies are just in-name only adaptations? I've said this before with a lot of Disney adaptations. Disney likes to take a story, break it down to its base elements, and essentially create an original story from that. 
you know, how much of The Little Mermaid was actually based off the original story, how much of Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Hercules, even more recent films like Princess and the Frog, Tangled, Frozen, are just barely adaptations of their original source material. Yeah, this this is kind of Disney's MO in that they like to take something in the public domain, throw out everything except the title, and create something that they can copyright. And then hold on to that copyright until the heat death of the universe. Anyone can make an adaptation of The Three Musketeers right now, but you can't make Disney's adaptation. Yep. Winnie and the Pooh, public domain, not Disney's Winnie the Pooh. At the same time this movie was being developed, TriStar Pictures was also trying to make their own Three Musketeers movie with Johnny Depp in the role of D'Artagnan. That never happened. This is one of the most filmed books in history. Even Disney would come back to the Three Musketeers much later as they did an animated movie with Mickey Mouse. Yes, sir. Janitors today, Musketeers tomorrow. Even though that also is an in-name-only adaptation. Disney, even before they did the, um, the Mickey Mouse version, did a Silly Symphony version. The Three uh, Blind Musketeers, the yes, the yeah. Three Blind Musketeers. We're the Three Blind Musketeers, yay! Three Blind Musketeers, ha 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 ha! We're the Three Blind Musketeers, yay! It's done over and over and over again. But this one is probably the best known one to... Our generation? Yeah, to, to our generation. And it's certainly kind of very influential on the ones that came after it. Even if you can't make Disney's Three Musketeers, you can sort of ape that style, you know? And I mean, a, a lot of people have done it since then. Yeah, and even this movie was aping from other people's interpretations of the Three Musketeers and other similar style movies. Yeah, there are certain plot points that are not from the book, but are taken from earlier movie versions even that Disney just kind of went oh that's kind of a good idea and they just kind of plucked them out from previous movie adaptations even so this is kind of one of those movie loafs that are kind of just uh, you know bit of this and a bit of that and we'll roll it together you know bit of bit of dead parents and a bit of you know because <laughs> villain Disney redemption do that <laughs> yeah uh bit of bit of a tropey villain and a bit of you know yeah the the a lot of the characters in the book had very nuanced uh morals let's say and all of that is thrown out the window for the good guys are the good guys and the bad guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the most one note bad guys you've ever seen and everyone is color-coded which, you know, as, as a herald, I kind of like. I like that everybody has their very specific color-coded heraldry. It makes it very easy to keep track of. Thank you. Mm -hmm. My my ADHD brain loves that. Like, who who are we fighting now? Like, oh, the, the, the red guys are the bad guys. Thank you, movie. <laughs> it makes it very easy to keep track of. And um, there, was a, there was a lot of people that were approached for this movie. 
Brad Pitt, Stephen Dorff, Winona Ryder, Carrie Ellis, Gary Oldman, Johnny Depp, Al Pacino, John Gaul- John Claude Van Damme. Like, oh my goodness, can you imagine John Claude Van Damme in this movie? <laughs> as Aramis, I would probably put him as Aramis. <laughs> I don't. I don't care who who he plays. I just like there. There'd have to be like, there would have to be like one scene where there are like two carriages racing down a lane side by side, and he's doing like splits on top of them as they're like. Al Pacino of <laughs> the Cardinal would have been gold. It would have been MST3K worthy gold. <sighs> well, we've we've already got two people in this uh movie from scent of a woman so why not just throw al pacino in there why not as well so let's let's talk about the people who are actually in this movie let's start with our main character our d'artagnan chris o'donnell who was everywhere he was like the it guy at the time like you said, scent of a woman. He was in school ties, uh, school ties. before this with uh, Brendan Fraser. We we talked about that in our Brendan Fraser episode back for for my birthday. But yeah, uh, this was right at the beginning of that crest. You know, he had uh, done fried green tomatoes, kind of started it off, and then. He did School Ties and Scent of a Woman in the same year. Those two just really, you know, he he popped into the mainstream with those, especially with Scent of a Woman, because that got him the, the Golden Globe uh, nomination. And not long after that, he would do Circle of Friends with Minnie Driver, where he actually did an accent. Yeah. Oh and... yeah, that's one, thing I, that's one thing I forgot to mention is that the accents are all over the place for this movie. Oh, we'll get to that. Don't think I'm not gonna talk about that. All right, all right. But Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah, but um, but this is this is right in that that arc, right as he's hitting it big. He's just come off a of scent of a woman, and this is kind of the next thing he did. Strangely, he comes off of the Golden Globe. For Scent of a Woman, he does Three Musketeers, and he gets the Razzie. Not to say it's completely unearned in this movie. I don't know. I I think it's a little bit unearned. Then he becomes Robin. And then and then he does uh, Batman and Robin, which he does not win the Razzie for that. He's only nominated for the Razzie for that. Why don't Why don't you win the Razzie for that? That's when you win the Razzie. And then now he's on like some NCILMNOP or something over on CBS. Let's uh, let's move on to our RMS, Charlie Sheen. Now we've talked about his brother Emilio Estevez, but I don't yeah. think we really talked about Charlie Sheen on this move on the on the show. No, we 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 haven't. But uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen as Aramis the uh. The man really, of God. Really, religious one. Weird <laughs> that's casting, his one, but that's okay. his one character trait in this movie. We yeah, boiled it, Aramis down to he believes in God. <laughs> Aramis, the 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 guy who prays a lot. Who do we cast? Charlie Sheen. Yes. Charlie Sheen, who had at this point had come out, come off of doing the Hot Shots movies. He had, uh, you know, he'd done 
Red Dawn and and all that. He'd done Platoon. And, young Guns. And, and Young Guns. League. Which he had which he had come off of with uh, Kiefer Sutherland. So, you know. Got a little and, bit of reunion there. <laughs> and, and, and Major League. And, you know. But, um. There was a point where Charlie Sheen was the it guy. And Kiefer Sutherland used to be the it guy. So there's a lot of people in this movie that were the it guy for a while. Uh, before he was the the TV actor that we kind of be, became to, to know him before Spin City and before... Two and um, a Half Men, yeah. Two and a Half Men and, you know. Um, one reviewer called this Young Swords. Because of the the reunion there, Kiefer Sutherland, who uh, was of course in in my childhood, uh, the the guy that was in both Stand by Me and Lost Boys. Yup. Yup. Flatliners. Um, oh, Flatliners, yeah. yeah, you know. Um, if if that's if that's your thing. Um, I, I was more Lost Boys than Flatliners. I'm just gonna Fair. say. Fair. Um, I'm, I I I'll always go for the vampires, and, and a little later on Dark City. You, you can't can't not like Dark City. Come on. Um, of course, later on in his career, he will be known as Jack Bauer in the TV series 24. Um, once again, I prefer Designated Survivor. Um, Fair. More, he he had just come off of A Few Good Men. That's what he's riding high off of right before he goes into Three Musketeers. But rounding out our, our musketeers here, we've got Oliver Platt p- playing Porthos, who is more our comic relief of the musketeers, I guess. Aramis, who he likes, he likes the women, but he's the man of God. And then you've got Athos as the kind of emo one with the tragic backstory. And then you've got Porthos in this version, who's just the I'm about winches and wine. And telling tall tales. And telling tall tales about the queen of america and the tsarina of tokyo and you know whatever and being a pirate and being a pirate and you know he had he had worked with Kiefer sutherland too on uh, flatliners but he had had successes with working girl uh postcards from the edge indecent proposal benny and june uh well yeah in indecent proposal and Benjamin um to our generation we would have remembered him in Beethoven just before this uh and of course who can never forget his role as Jimmy King in Re- Ready to Rumble the wrestling movie <laughs> <laughs> I'm never I'm, letting I'm, him forget that well a, a very a very specific uh very specific audience for that one yeah. 93 was kind of a big year for for him because you know that like 1992 1993 you know you got the indecent proposal benny and june and three musketeers all kind of in there our our villain is of course tim curry 
playing Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah, you gotta love a Tim Curry. And as our kind of secondary other, villain. Yeah, secondary villain, I guess. Uh, you got Rebecca De Mornay as Milady De Winter. She interestingly continues the the Disney connection here as she not long ago showed up on uh, Jessica Jones. The Marvel Netflix show, yeah. Yeah, um, playing uh, Dorothy Walker, who is the mom of, of Patsy, of Patsy, Jessica's best friend, who last adopted sister. Yeah, who adopted Jessica after Jessica's parents died. She had just come off. Uh, the hand that rocks the cradle the year before. Hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. <laughs> yeah, and um, that was a, a huge film in the American zeitgeist at the time. I mean, that, that movie was everywhere. Of course, she had done Risky Business, and she had done backdraft by this point so i mean you know she was she was known by the time she did this one uh we got as our kind of other other villain or or minion i guess we've got michael wincott who had previous to this been guy of gisborne in robin hood prince of thieves he would go on after this to play uh, Top Dollar uh, in The Crow. Uh, he'd work with Kiefer Sutherland again um, in uh, one of the 24 series. Uh, recently, he's uh, shown up in, in Westworld. And that kind of wraps up our, our major antagonist. As far as minor, very minor antagonist, uh, Weirdly, uh, we have one of the doctors from Doctor Who shows up as the minor antagonist for D'Artagnan in this. And I did not realize that it was him until the rewatch because I have not seen this film since before I was a Doctor Who fan. Paul McGann as Gerard. And also a minor character named Jusak, who we had to look up because we were like, who the hell is Jusak? And it turns out he's just one of the, like, random cardinal uh, minions. And I think it's just because they needed a guy to, like, put on a red tabard and run around with a sword. Paul McGann getting all the money's worth of that movie. And yeah, Gerard is an original character created for this movie because we needed D'Artagnan to have a rival. Yeah, I think they just felt they needed a reason to keep D'Artagnan from going back home. Because there's so much in this movie that you're just like, D'Artagnan, why, why don't you just go back home? It is ridiculous for you to stay here. Well, mostly because they, as you said, this is the Disney trope, so we have the dead parent. In the original story, D'Artagnan's father is very much alive and sends D'Artagnan to France to become a musketeer, not to come back until he becomes one. 
we don't have that in this in this story now because they uh, D'Artagnan's father is dead at the beginning of the story. So we need a reason to keep him in France. So we have Gerard as this jealous brother of a of a woman that D'Artagnan had relations with because he's going to France and she wants some she wants him to have something to remember her by. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And he, Gerard feels that his family had been dishonored because of this. So him and all of his brothers are going to chase D'Artagnan to regain the honor of their sister. A sister we've never seen in the entire movie. And also it's very uh, un- unclear what happened because it's Disney. And, and it's like a PG movie or whatever. It could have been a little smooshy smooch. It could have been a gift. Yeah, it's he. It, D'Artagnan claims nothing happened, and then he said she just wanted something to, you know, to remember me by, and that's it. <laughs> Fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's apparently a big enough deal that Gerard and all of his brothers feel that they need to chase D'Artagnan all the way to Paris. To end his life. End his life over. (laughs) Yeah. Um so yeah, it's it's very weird. They they make Paul McGann very foppish and very shrill. Yeah, they have they have him talking this very high speaky accent. Speaky voice, yeah. This was such a meme. With me and my friends all through, like, middle school and high school. Like, for years. D'Artagnan! I mean, I was, like, in my 20s. And we were still making fun of this. Like, I would answer the phone to one of my friends screaming, D'Artagnan! Like, it's just, like... (laughs) Like, I nearly lost an eardrum to this freaking, you know, uh, it it was that, that for some reason that made us laugh so much among a particular group of my friends for a certain amount of time. We could not stop doing that to each other. There's one more actor uh, we want to talk about, and he is uncredited in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that- but he is probably one of the most interesting and influential people in this whole film. Uh, His name is Bob Anderson and he shows up in one scene. He is the fencing instructor to King Louis. Uh, You see him in a very short scene where he is teaching King Louis how to fence uh, right as Tim Curry comes up and says, Oh, bravo, your majesty or whatever. Um, But Bob Anderson is, was a fight choreographer. He was also a uh, Olympic a st- fencer and a stuntman. And a stuntman. Um, this man is responsible for every awesome sword fight scene you can think of in modern film. Highlander, Princess Bride, The Mask of Zorro, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. 
He was yeah. the choreographer for the lightsaber battles between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. He is the stunt double, the sword stunt double for Darth Vader in uh, in Empire and Jedi. Yeah, I mean, just the, uh, you know, we spent a long time when we talked about Princess Bride talking about the the fight scene between Wesley and Inigo. Just that one scene alone would have qualified this man as absolute film royalty. And yet, <laughs> um, we also talked about the the fight scene uh, between Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom in, in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Again, this and, guy. <laughs> and how, how amazing that one was. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's that amazing fight slash seduction scene in Mask of Zorro, which we've not talked about. Not a Disney uh, thing, but um, yeah. but you know it's such an infamous scene between um, Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Again, him, uh, and of course, you know anything Star Wars. You know, just mm-hmm. doing all of the the lightsaber stuff in the the original uh, trilogy. Um, the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. You know. So pick any one of those credits. Um, he was, you know, swordmaster for Highlander. All of the stuff between Christopher Lambert and Clancy Brown in that. But then he was the the fight master for um, at least a couple of years of the series. Mm. Um, I mean, you're. You know, I I I am here as uh, speaking to you as a chick with a Highlander tattoo, so it's it's you know, it's not exactly a a person unmoved by that series. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the man is just the legend of legends. So there you there you go. If you if you wanna if you wanna know what that what that guy looks like, there he is on camera in all of his glory. But yeah, Bob Anderson, absolute stone cold legend. Yeah, so let's get into the actual story or yeah, the story of this version of the three musketeers. We've already kind of started the beginning of it where D'Artagnan says he's going to go to Paris. He's going to become a musketeer like his father before him. His father who had uh, passed away per, uh, in a failed attempt to prevent the previous king from being assassinated. Uh, we get Gerard there saying, hey, you done something with my sister and I'm going to me and my brothers are going to kill you. And they just chase him all the way to Paris. But we do we do get our our first glimpse of how good uh, a fighter D'Artagnan is. Yeah, because he takes out several what he believes to be robbers, which turned out to be the queen's bodyguards, not realizing that the maidens he's protecting is the queen's handmaiden. Well, I was actually talking about his his first bit with Gerard. 
Oh yeah, that that opening sword fight. Okay. Yeah, that that opening sword fight because it seems very matched at the beginning. And then D'Artagnan realizes like you know, oh, I'm running late. I need to get out of here. Like, oh, there's more people coming and you know, I don't want to have to deal with this. Yeah, and Gerard's he very bro- quickly puts Gerard down. Yeah, Gerard, my, my brothers will will have your head already. And as he's saying this, his brothers are coming down the the hill to take out D'Artagnan. Yeah, and you you realize that D'Artagnan's been playing with him the entire time because he didn't actually want to hurt the guy. Like he he didn't want to fight a duel to the death. He has no beef with this guy. He doesn't. Like, you know, like, this guy wants to hurt him and all, but D'Artagnan really doesn't have any issue with the guy. Probably nothing happened with the sister, because later on in the movie, D'Artagnan doesn't actually seem that skilled with women. Yeah, that seems to be a running throughout the the, the movie, is that he believes the woman in danger turns out to be the queen's handmaiden, who is... uh, and this version is Constance. Those two are pretty smitten right at the get-go. It's like he tries to say something and it comes out not so well. Later in the movie, he tries to uh, take to quote the other... Shakespeare, yeah. He tries to quote Shakespeare. He messes it up because uh, he's trying to emulate the other musketeers' uh, skill with women. I mean, it, he gets to make out with a bar wench anyway, but the point is that he's not very, he's young, he's not very skilled with women, so you can believe that he's telling the truth at the beginning of the movie, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, and you can probably say, like, you know, well, she, she wanted to, to give me something to remember her by or something. It might just very well be a favor. She may have given him, like, a handkerchief and a peck on the cheek or something. Mm-hmm. It really may have been that innocent. It it may have been more than that, of course. Yeah, the whole thing is a wink and a nod. The idea is, is that you see very quickly that D'Artagnan is extremely skilled and could have put this guy down at any time and was toying with him. He was He was trying to... You know, he he wanted this guy to he wanted this guy to get tired and call it a draw and you know realize his mistake and go away um, because he didn't want to hurt him. Uh, but when he when he realizes like uh you know whatever he disarms the guy very quickly. Gerard thinks like, okay, you're going to kill me, but my brothers will avenge my death and avenge my sister and everything. And D'Artagnan's like, eh, I'm not about that. And goes to leave. But they chase him anyway. We see that Richelieu is very evil and very ambitious. And yeah, there, the open, the entire opening credits is showing you how evil Cardinal Richelieu is. There's a he's has one person in a dungeon who just wanted to do stole food to feed his family. He said, "Please, you know, you're a man of God. Please hold God's mercy upon me." And uh, his response is, "You know, yes, I will show mercy upon you. I'll, I'll show mercy upon your family 
by giving them one less mouth to feed. This is to show you that he's evil. Yeah, he oh, is very mustache twirlingly evil. This is a this is a '90s Disney villain where they was where there was no nuance. It's not like the movies of today where you get a misunderstanding villain or something like that. But it's like no, this is we want you to know that this character is evil. Yeah, this this is very evil and very murderous, but also this is like a PG movie or whatever, so there's never any blood and never any violence on screen. This movie is not any outright saying it's a kids movie, but they want to keep it family friendly. Yeah, so like they're torturing a guy, but you only see it in shadows. They murder a guy, but you it's only off screen. You know, it's like when people are stabbed, there's no blood. Yeah, it's like there's blood on like Chris O'Donnell's face at one point, but it looks like ketchup. Like it's it's really it, it's somehow a very violent sword fighty movie and completely bloodless. Yeah, you know, you find out very quickly that Richelieu is very, very evil, and he wants the throne. Um, And he very definitely was behind the murder of the last king, and hey. now he needs to murder the current king so that he can take his wife and steal his throne. Yeah, this is very much, I mean... Uh... Very much Frollo before Frollo kind of deal. Yeah. Where he's a man of God, but he is well ready, willing, and able to com- com- uh, succumb to the sins of the flesh, especially when it comes to the queen. Yeah, he's constantly doing things like walking in on her while she's taking a bath. and That is the most risque part of this movie is you see the queen taking a bath you don't see anything above her neck because she's completely submerged yeah it's it's a very opaque milk bath but uh yeah it's it's kind of the most risque thing that that and the um the plentiful uh, amount of cleavage coming out of rebecca de mornay's corset i want to pause here for just a second because we, before we get going with the rest of the story, I, I let's address the accents, just please. I want to just get this oh, out of yeah. the way because it's bothering. It's gonna be, it's gonna bother me for the rest of this episode. Let's get this out now. The accents are all over the place. The American actors all have American accents. The British actors all have British accents, except for the one Canadian actor who also has a British accent, and the one French actor has a French accent. They don't. This was all over the place. And as a linguist yourself, Kiki, I just need, I want to have your thoughts on the whole thing. It's like the, the musketeers are all kind of vaguely American. Tim Curry is Tim Curry. Rebecca de Mornay is doing something. I, I, I don't know what Rebecca de Mornay is really doing in that. I think she's trying an accent of some sort. Michael Wincott is just doing his normal raspy whatever. McGann sounds like he got kicked in the nethers every time they yelled action. Gabrielle Anwar has her normal, you know, accent, but she's, you know, British. 
Mm-hmm. Hugh O'Connor is Irish, but he's doing like a British thing as the French king. Yeah, so Constance is the the only one who sounds even vaguely French. Because she's actually French. It feels like they didn't even try with this movie. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not everyone. I'm not expecting everyone to go around with stereotypical French accents, but either do 100% one way or another. Either everyone's going to have like British sounding accents or have everyone have American accents. I don't like Tim Curry with an American accent, but at least, you know, have it uniform. So they all feel like they're all from the same country. Yeah. It- if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, at least try to have everyone sound like they're from the same place. You can kind of forgive everybody for not sounding like they're from a specific country as long as they sound like they're from the same place. That's my only complaint with them uh, in terms of the accents of the movie. Once we get to the actual musketeers themselves. We find that the musketeers have been disbanded, and this is all part of the the cardinal's plan to leave the king unprotected so he can murder him. And all of the musketeers have uh, all the musketeers begrudgingly accept this disbandment. They're throwing their 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 smocks or whatever they're called tabards tabards into the onto a bonfire. They're throwing their swords down, and eventually it comes to the point where all but three have uh, agreed to this. And I wonder who those three are. <laughs> Would it happen to be the only other three musketeers named in this movie? <laughs> it's kind of interesting because this scene bothers me. Because I get that they're the the king's personal guard mm-hmm. in, in this version and and that they have no other function. The idea of it is that they make this big show of throwing away their official tabards, which are very, very nice. Onto this big old bonfire. Onto this big old bonfire. And they also throw down their official swords, which are also very, very nice. And they're marked specifically with like the heraldry of the you know props to the prop department for this one oh yeah but the thing is is like at the end of the film when they regather every single one of these people have a spare tabard and a spare official sword yeah under the floorboards of their house and i'm like i don't care if you are the king's personal bodyguard that crap is expensive. You are lucky to have one. Okay? This is not mass produced. Okay? This isn't <laughs> like a work about uniform. Handmade, hand forged. Okay? We're not talking about like you just go down to the Walmart and pick up another one. All right? Do you know how, how expensive and rare this stuff is? You get one. All right. If it wasn't them throwing them onto a bonfire, I could have believed that maybe someone had retrieved like them. them back. Yeah, yeah, retrieved them in some capacity. But we see these musketeers throw their scabbards, uh, throw their, you know, their uniforms, their official uniforms onto this bonfire. If they had not just thrown, if they had not had the bonfire there 
and they just threw them down onto the ground. I could believe that they had retrieved them in some capacity, but yeah, that that does that did bother me when, once we got to the end of the movie. I mean, I could sort of see, like, you know, maybe they hadn't had time to, like, melt down all the swords and reforge them into something else or whatever. So I could see how maybe they could steal the swords back and everything. But, like, those taverns got burnt, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's a good scene, I guess, to have them all show up. And it makes it really easy to color code them. But, like, that stuff is expensive. It's a nice hero moment, and that's all it needed to be. Uh, D'Artagnan makes it to France. He goes to the headquarters of the Musketeers. He wants to join, where he meets up with uh, Athos, saying uh, the Musketeers are no more. We've been disbanded. Uh, You can take whatever you want as a souvenir, but uh, we're not hiring anymore. We're out of business. How ridiculous is... Richelieu and his like um little minion there that they're like find me these three musketeers that won't show up and like they don't leave a single person at musketeer headquarters in case they come back right and how long has it been I mean we are to assume that that uh Athos Artemis and, and Porthos had maybe recently returned and they didn't get the memo but, yeah, you would have someone there waiting, oh, they're going to come back. And when they come back to this place, we're going to either arrest them or kill them. Like, but- you're just going to leave somebody there, like, okay, one, in case the three musketeers come back, but also, two, just in case of looters. Yeah. Or squatters or something. I mean, this is a very nice building in the middle of a country that you are currently, like, treating like crap and starving. And that is another change from the book, is uh, the treatment of the lower class that they kind of ignore for most of this movie. Well, I mean, that they say, you know, I mean, in the first scene, they're, they're saying that people are stealing food because they don't have any food. And then at one point, you know, the the um, queen and the, the lady-in-waiting are talking about how they have been among the people and seen how, how Richelieu is treating the lower classes and how they are suffering under his rule and how it needs to be changed and, and what a bad man. I mean... The- the carrot scene later where they're throwing the gold to the people. Yeah, I get it. But what I mean is that the musketeers, the king and queen, basically all of the higher-ups tend to treat the pe- the uh, the lower-class people as lesser than, which we don't get in this movie because we need to make sure who we know, we know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Simpli- well, yeah. Simplifying this. That's, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's... And I understand why they're doing it. They want to simplify the story. They want to condense the story into a two-hour movie because the book is long. Yeah, they also they also change uh, the crime of Milady de Winter in her mm-hmm. backstory to make her more black and white. Because uh, when Athos is telling the backstory... He says that, uh, you know, when he's talking about like, oh, you know, there was a account and 
he took a woman as his wife and then he discovered one day that she had a brand of the fleur-de-lis and that's the brand they only give to murderers but in the book it's just the brand that is given to kind of any felon criminal and in the book it's given to her for theft and it's because uh she convinced she was joining a nunnery um she was taking uh preparing to take her holy orders i think i don't think she'd taken them yet maybe but uh she was joining a convent and she fell in love with a priest or she seduced a priest or something and she convinced him to take the chalices that were used for communion in order to finance their runaway so that they could run away and sell the chalices and get married and start a life together and when they were caught she was branded but the priest ended up escaping the brand because like the the judge or the executioner or something like that was related to the priest and so he ended up not branding his relative so that the the priest could escape the the shame and so she ended up bearing shame and not the priest and they ended up running away together and she ended up marrying athos and you know it became a whole thing but in the movie he says that it was a brand only given to murderers and she told him that she was wrongly convicted and had escaped you know before she could be executed and please don't you know he sent her away to be executed and somehow she escaped and you know i mean with with milady de winter they straight up show that she could kill anyone if need be yeah and it's it's their way of making her a more a more black and white villain because they want us to not feel bad about what happens to her but also in the movie she says that she became that later that what she told him when she was married to him was the truth like when you met me i wasn't a murderer but because of what you did to me i became a murderer because i had to survive so she kind of blames it on athos whereas in the book it's a bit more complicated like we don't know all about her backstory but it seems kind of maybe that she may have been sent to a convent and she didn't want to be and maybe she was looking for a way out and maybe she even loved the priest but like you know the priest came from like a better background than she did so he was able to escape a punishment and she bore it all and you know i mean it was a really it was kind of a a a thing and then it was like there's a question of like maybe did the priest kind of set it up to kind of maybe even have her seduce athos so that the priest could get into a better position by having her you know his woman be you know the the wife of the count and you know i mean it's 
it's a much more ambiguous story in the book. But in this one, it's like, nope, she's a murderer. <laughs> yeah, a lot more nuances. Every character has a moral nuance that is completely eliminated for this film. Yeah. So one by one, D'Artagnan meets the three musketeers, gets on their bad side, and they challenge him to a duel, which really is the only thing from the book that's taken into this movie. And in this one, like, it's a really kind of spurious reason for each of them to have a duel. So, yeah, uh, he meets uh, he meets Athos at Musketeer headquarters, feels disrespected, challenges him to a duel. Meets Armis as he's escaping a supposed married woman's domicile while he's trying to tutor her. And she wants to uh, be tutored in a different subject. And he ends up crashing into D'Artagnan and uh, uh, first apologizes for it, but then D'Artagnan doesn't accept the apology, so they go for a duel. Meets Porthos as he's whining and dining. Uh, knocks some, uh, I believe, some food onto his staff that he says is from the Queen of America. To which D'Artagnan says America doesn't have a queen. And again, challenges to a duel. Then Paul McGann shows up again, screeching at him, and he's like, ugh, this guy. And then the the uh, Cardinals, you know, red tabards show up and... Then the musketeers are like, ugh, these guys. And we get the big sword bra with the with the four of them taking on the captain, the cardinal's men, and uh, Gerard's family. There's a scene here that I, I, I want to talk about before we get it, because we did skip it, which is the bar scene where where the captain goes in and meets Athos and Armis in the bar, and we get. If you you can piece honestly you can you can piece, I haven't seen this movie in about twenty something years. You you piece all of it together and they make it very simple for you to do so. Once we well, the first time the captain and meets Athos and uh, Armis, they say the, the the last time that they were in the same place together was when uh was when he was uh excommunicated from the Musketeers for disorderly conduct or disorder uh seemingly having this vendetta against them which kind of pieces into later on where uh athos says uh, that he knew d'artagnan's father and that he was uh he was murdered by a man that betrayed the musketeer so you can kind of put everything together where it's all going well yeah and there's also another another hint to that before we get the big kind of reveal Later on, after D'Artagnan gets captured and he's brought before Richelieu, he's kneeling before Richelieu and Richelieu says, what's your name? And he says, D'Artagnan. And Richelieu kind of raises an eyebrow and he looks over at the captain and the captain makes a slashing motion across his eye patch. And Richelieu goes, ah. So... We get from that point, at the very least, that uh, D'Artagnan's father was the one who took Rochefort's eye. And then you kind of piece together later, you know, on that he died protecting the king and that Richelieu was the one who set up the murder of the king and that Rochefort was the one who led the charge and that 
eventually you get the confirmation that yes, it was the Rochefort that went toe to toe with D'Artagnan's father and ended up killing him. Uh, D'Artagnan is captured, and this is like you said, we go through all of that, and uh, Rochefort takes D'Artagnan's sword, saying as uh, D'Artagnan says, "That was my father's sword." I will say though that um, it is mentioned that uh, Aramis was had been trained under Richelieu and that he was very um, betrayed when he discovered that uh, Richelieu had betrayed the king and, uh, you know, so that it was very um, painful for him. He never... um, ended up finishing his you know his training to uh become a, a priest uh D'Artagnan overhears the conversation between Milady and Richelieu and their plans to not only kill King Louis but to forge an alliance with the Duke of Buckingham France is in a war with England or about to go to war with England yeah they say that um that Buckingham is basically in control of England in the same sort of way that Richelieu is controlling France. That's part of uh, Richelieu's plan to gain the throne. They plan to execute D'Artagnan because of this. Well, you don't want him to go blabbing all your treasonous plans before you can do them. But uh, the the musketeers show up, they free them, and they escape, and they learn about what's going about the uh, the plan. They don't know that Milady is the the messenger. They just know that Richard was talking to someone. So their plan is to find the messenger, intercept them, and make sure that that message never makes it to Buckingham. And we we're also uh, in part of the conversation with with Richard. We learned that Milady. Killed her husband, but uh, the implication is that Milady killed her husband, and uh, it, establishing her as a threat. The Cardinals reach its vast over all over France, as pretty much everywhere they go, there are people siding with the Cardinal trying to kill the Musketeers. But we eventually get uh, D'Artagnan kind of going on his own because all the uh, other Musketeers have been de- detained by. Uh, by these battles and he ends up uh getting unconscious and ends up in uh right in front of milady's uh carriage so um milady looking at this very strapping young man decides uh it can wait for me to deliver this uh this treaty uh i'm gonna need me a young boy yeah i mean you you find a passed out chris o'donnell by the side of the road and, you know, you're going to pick him up and take him home and undress it and try some things. And but, he wakes uh, up and he's like, um, no, thank you. And so she's like, oh, I'm I'm just going to kill you then. Pretty much. And she he kind of says, you know, I'm on a mission for the Musketeers. I'm trying to find this this messenger. Not knowing yeah. that Milady is the, yeah, he is just completely. Like, there's no tactic. He is completely letting the entire plan out right there, right in front of Milady de Winter, 
Not I, have, I have no idea who the spy might be, so let me just tell the plan to every random person. Good work, D'Artagnan. Yeah. You can make a fine musketeer. So, of course, she tries to kill him because, you know, he's like, no, 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 I can I can be more used to you alive. And she's like, oh, well, you are kind of cute, so I'll take you with me on the boat in case I need a snack. But they they get to the boat and uh, the musketeers are already there and have already killed everybody on the boat. And they're like, surprise. That would be imply that they already figured out that Milady was the. Uh, this, well, they uh, knew which boat sh- that the spy was going to sail on. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know who the spy was, but they knew which boat the spy was going to be taking. So they just went to the boat and killed everybody on it and waited for the spy to show up. And they've captured Milady to winter. And Athos is like, uh, sweetheart. What are you doing? (laughs) Darling, didn't I kill you? Yeah, but uh, I'm not dead. (laughs) Athos is like, well, give me the the information on Richelieu's plan. And she's like, no, I'm still mad at you. Well, uh, I wish I could stop the execution from happening. I can't. But if you want your soul clean when you go, you could just tell us. And she's like, no, I'm going to be petulant and... Then there's like a whole thing where they take her up to a beautiful mountain to kill her. And then she has a whole change of heart and like, no, I was, I was really, I was really innocent. I super duper love you. And by the way, he's going to kill the king on his birthday. And I'm going to kill myself now. Bye. Also taking a bit of the moral ambiguity of the musketeers away. Yeah, like nobody executes her. She just kills herself. But it's, like I said, it takes a bit of the moral ambiguity of the musketeers away because that choice is taken away from them. Whether in the book, um, yeah. Yeah, there's, they, 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 they carry out the the execution. There's still guilt, I guess, with, at those because it's like well i did treat her badly but he did condemn in, her to this fate in like the he, end you know she forgave me and then she killed herself so i guess i'm off scot-free so yeah and uh how are they going to kill the king on his birthday with an assassin with a rifle yeah the the only person in the musketeer movie that uses something approaching a musket i guess we do see some some firearms in this movie before so it's not like a new thing well yeah but they're like pistols and stuff it's not Mm -hmm. like a musket you know anyway the um this is where we get to the big moment where the musketeers start to rally the other former musketeers. They throw the message, all for one, one for all, and we get the very ridiculous, every musketeer had to spare everything in their secret homes and whatnot. Which, again, it makes a nice scene where you see all the musketeers kind of gearing up, and it's a nice hero moment when all the musketeers are revealed. 
But it just, it would have made a better scene had we not had the big, let's burn everything in a bonfire, leave all your swords and stuff here. If it had just been like, go home. You're fired. That's just it. Yeah, go home, you're fired. It would have made more sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, There's but, also, uh, there is one thing that I want, that we haven't talked about yet. And that is. Constance, after meeting D'Artagnan, she has this heart-to-heart with the queen over, hey, I've only known this man 30 seconds, but I can't stop thinking about him. And the queen is trying to say, you know, sometimes that's all it takes for love. And she laments that her and Louis was an arranged marriage, and she didn't know how to take that. And there's a little bit of these two have some very odd secret love for each other, but they can't express it kind of deal, which as far as I am aware, these two kind of had a pretty much a loveless marriage in real life. I'm not sure. A lot of, a lot of Royal marriages were like that because it's like, well, we don't need you to be in love. We just need you to be of the correct bloodline and produce children. Yeah. But it's implied that there's this, love affair between the two that they secretly love each other and it's weird i mean i I get what they're trying to do but i feel like it doesn't work in execution in this movie oh yeah it definitely does not and also uh richelieu kind of getting between the two said oh the queen's gonna do this to you oh the king i mean uh you know king the the king doesn't believe that this should happen and you know, trying to put the wedge between them, as it were. Yeah, well, he wants the, the queen to come with him when he has killed the king. You know, he wants the queen to be like, oh, you know, I never loved him much anyway. I'll I'll be okay, you know, marrying you once the king is dead. But, you know, we we finally have, like, a whole interesting thing where... It's a cool-looking scene. Yeah, it's a cool-looking scene where he slides down and he knocks the sniper off just enough to make him miss the shot uh, right as he shoots. And then the three musketeers pop out. They're like, hi, we're here to ruin your plans. Tim Curry, without missing a beat, is like, get the musketeers. They're trying to kill the king. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And then we have that great scene of the the three musketeers just standing alone against like all these guards. And then um, we get, I like the cut. It's almost like an Avengers Endgame moment where all of the peasants in 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 the audience take off their robes and they're all wearing the garb of the musketeers. Yeah, it's a it's a good little moment. Then the then the whole courtyard bursts out into just absolute mayhem of a duel which i also like we get the the bit where richelieu drags the king and the queen down further in towards the the underwater river i mean uh, the underground river to try to get them out uh so that he can uh murder the king himself uh, and one by one, our main three musketeers are kind of taken out of the of the fight. Like Rochefort stabs uh, Athos in the arm. In 
in probably one of the most, I don't know how to explain it, but it's kind of a cool scene here where Aramis confronts uh, Richelieu saying, you know, you're a man of God. You know, this isn't, you know, uh, I'm a man. Uh, Richelieu says, you know, as a man of God, I don't abide by man's law. And Aramis says, well, maybe you'll abide by God's. And then he just pulls out this pistol and shoots him. You first. And then I, I love the how how that comes back around um on the the boat where the boatman you know takes off his cloak and it's Aramis uh with the the crucifix with the bullet in the center <laughs> because the the crucifix caught the bullet I love the line after I was like guess there really is a god <laughs> yeah but you know we get the whole the whole sword fight, you know, as it as it moves from the the courtyard into the castle proper and into the throne room, and then we finally get that that showdown between D'Artagnan and the man who killed his father in Rochefort. Um, as Rochefort is has the the sword that he took from D'Artagnan, his his father's sword. And has been using it. Eventually, you know, it's it's one of those Enyeko Montoya moments, you know, and it's it's beautifully choreographed, um, of course. But he takes back his father's sword and gives Rochefort the sword he's been using for the whole movie, and they have this great big sword duel. And Rochefort being a uh, uh, Rochefort being the more experienced swordsman is able to unarmed unarmed artanian fairly quickly but and is about to kill him if it wasn't for this and but it uh re-enter constance doing the one thing that she does in this entire movie as uh she throws the sword back to d'artanian who stabs rochefort right in the chest and uh kills uh there goes that rochefort has uh it's dead and d'artanian has avenged his father yeah, and when you're first watching the film, you know, the first time you see the film, mm-hmm. and you're watching it, and, you know, D'Artagnan's just kind of laying there, and you're like, well, how are you going to get out of this one, buddy? And then all of a sudden, the sword just kind of, like, the force moves the sword yeah, it was, into it, it, D'Artagnan's it, it, hand. If you're not paying attention, yeah, it looks like he just used a fourth pull to get the sword in, in the, into his hand. Well, even if you are paying attention, the first time you see the movie, there's not a reveal there until afterward. So the first time you're watching the movie, the sword just sl- like glides across the floor out of nowhere. And you're like, the hell? And then he kills her, then he falls back and everything. And it's not until afterwards that he looks over and there's Constance, like, laying on the floor, like, smiling at him. And you're like, oh, okay, I thought he just became a Jedi for a second. like, (laughs) Because it kind of does come out of nowhere, because there's not a lot of setup, you know? Yeah. It really is kind of a shock where that sword came from the first time you're watching it. Like, even if you're watching it 
pretty closely, you know. Um, so it is it is kind of not not great. So yeah, as you know, after all of that, uh, Richard takes the king and queen, and he thinks he's escaping. And uh, as you said, we get the reveal that uh, Aramis is uh, driving the boat. Uh, and the uh, the other the other three are not far behind, you know. Um, so we we get the the Athos and, and Porthos and D'Artagnan have followed down, and uh, Aramis re- goes to to kill Richelieu, and and Louis is like, no no no, please allow me. And uh, we get that very uh, satisfying punch of uh, Richelieu into the water. I guess they fish him out later and put him in a jail cell or something. We never really see what happens. So we get to the big final part. The musketeers are seemingly reinstated and D'Artagnan is made a musketeer. You know, the musketeers are there to protect and you will join them and follow in your father's footsteps and your father's gonna, you know, your father would be proud to see a kid and and uh, D'Artagnan and Constance kiss. Yes, Constance lives in this version. Yeah, because uh, it is a Disney movie. Yep. And I guess that whole uh, bit about ladies in waiting and musketeers not being allowed to fraternize has been uh, lifted, I guess. Maybe, I guess. Because she says that earlier in the, the in the movie about the, them not being allowed to hang out together. But at that point, the Musketeers have already been disbanded, so it wouldn't mean matter. But, uh, but they've just been reinstated. Like, by the time they kiss, they've been reinstated, and he's a Musketeer now, and she does it in front of the king and queen, so maybe they've gotten special dispensation. Uh, who cares? They've kissed. It's a love story now. Yay. And uh, yeah, now he's a musketeer. You know, you protect the king and queen in the name of God, in the name of France. And we get one last In the get. name of a candy bar. <laughs> Sorry, it's my favorite candy bar. I had to work it in at some point. Yeah, I was wondering how we we're going to do that. But we get one last one last gag and it's Gerard, uh, Gerard and his brothers are there to take out D'Artagnan once and for all. And they see him in the in the in the uniform of the of the musketeer. And then uh, they say, you know, we don't just protect the king and the queen in France. We protect each other. And. Uh, Gerard and, her and his brothers are all chased out of France by every single musketeer. I mean, that's kind of a waste of resources to take out four guys, but it makes it for a nice comical ending. And then we get the credits with the, the goofy, Ryan Adams, Rod Stewart's song. Yeah. yeah. And if you're watching this on Disney Plus, you will get a uh, maybe you can recommend the Mickey Mouse version. <laughs> yeah, it does not have this goofy '90s song. Maybe we should do the the Mickey Mouse version in a future episode. 
But uh, yeah, that is the 1993 Three Musketeers movie. Um, well, what since you said you know this was your childhood, what did you think? It was goofy, but it was always goofy. Like even when I was a kid, I was like, this is not a great movie, but it's a fun movie. That's what I get about this movie. Again, as an adaptation, no. This is a very bad adaptation of The Three Musketeers. But it's a fun movie. It's a goofy movie. I enjoyed myself watching it. It was fun. You can definitely see some of the inspiration for some of the later live-action movies. Like You could see, and not just from that, the fact that they had the same uh, choreographer, but some of the story beats kind of go into uh, you can see some of the story beats kind of lend themselves to what would come in like um like in pirates of the caribbean there's a lot of the same story beats and the same style of humor that to go into that movie like this is the, the the building blocks of what would become that at least from the way i i interpreted the, the this movie i don't know if you felt the same way it had a lot of the same kind of tropes that I would like in later movies. You know, like you said, in the Pirates of the Caribbean and, and things like that. Um, so a lot of that same kind of stuff was in this film. It, it was done better in other films, of course. Yeah. But... A lot of the same stuff that I liked in Princess Bride, for instance, and stuff is in this too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not as slick or witty. Not um, as refined. And, yeah, as it's not be. as refined. I can forgive it for that. Mm-hmm. So let's ask the question: Does the Three Musketeers 1993 version? Have the magic, Kiki. I'm going to say yes if you're willing to meet it on its own terms. This is not the Dumas story. This is very shallow, very black and white in its morals i'm gonna say very childish at points you know Mm -hmm. but it's fun i am going to say that i'm going to say that again if you're looking for a true adaptation of the book look somewhere else if you're looking for a movie that's fun to watch that you can just turn on and not think about it it's fine if you're looking for a simplistic story, it's fine. Um, so I'm going to say yes, only because it's just goofy enough and that you'll have fun watching it. But if you're looking for a serious, straight adaptation of the book, look look elsewhere. And I think that's all we can say about The Three Musketeers. So next week, we are going to be talking about a Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. We are taking a look at Moana. 
maybe we can use a different um, Lin-Manuel song to get rid of Bruno that's in all of our heads right now? I I would hope so, because I got to tell you, I, I I cannot get that other song out of, out of my head. For the past week, I've been seeing nothing but uh, Bruno and uh, other Encanto songs mashed up into Hamilton songs. And I'm and I want to say, can, can can we mash them up into some Moana songs, or at least some In the Heights songs? <laughs> he did other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna go into Moana, and uh, we'll check that out and see uh, how that goes. So yeah, come back next week for Moana, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. <laughs>